0: Going back to 1948, it's very, very clear that Ben-Gurion envisioned the IDF, not merely as a defense force, but as a kind of homogenization of Israeli society, that people should have common experiences, they should go through something together. He thought that would create a national cohesiveness, that group identity was an extremely important part of his vision in the army. Unfortunately, the very thing that he saw as a positive, many Haredim see that's Spudavka destructive the notion of kind of assimilating into the values of a secular society. So as a result, there are good reasons why they feel that the army is a dangerous, spiritually dangerous environment. The only question is, how does that override the halachic
1: imperatives of Milchames Mitzvah? I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. In episode 184, my guests Michael Eisenberg and Rabbi Yehoshua Hershberg and I talked about our conviction that it's time for the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel, more commonly referred to as the Haredim, to participate more fully in Israeli society, specifically by ending what is effectively a blanket exemption from military service and by becoming more fully integrated into Israel's economic life. I also wrote about this in numerous articles on my Substack Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. What was lacking, however, was an explanation of the Haredi point of view on these matters. So in the interest of expanding and deepening the conversation, I was honored to welcome Rabbi Yitzchak Breidowitz to articulate the arguments that are commonly used by those who identify as ultra-Orthodox. Rabbi Breidowitz is one of the Orthodox world's most brilliant scholars. In addition to being an outstanding Talmud Chacham, He is also a graduate of Harvard Law School and was an associate professor at the University of Maryland School of Law before moving to Israel. We engaged in a fascinating conversation about Haredi integration into the military, the economy, and more, and no topic was off-limits. Let me be clear that I asked Rabbi Breitowitz to explain the Haredi position as best as he understands it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he identifies with every argument he presents. Nevertheless, I'm very pleased that he agreed to talk about this with me, as there are few other individuals who are able to explain Torah ideas and ideals, truly backed by real knowledge and scholarship, as well as Rabbi Breitowitz. We'll begin that conversation in just a moment. First, let me remind you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate it and write a review. Please subscribe to my Substack, Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. Last week I posted two articles. The first is entitled, Idealistic, and completely, dangerously wrong, where I discussed some of the mistakes that I believe many religious Zionists are making by advocating a type of territorial maximalism and militarism, while neglecting some of the most important values on which religious Zionism was originally founded. The second is the two crowns, a trip to Eden, and then back to the way things were before, which is an investigation into what exactly the children of Israel meant when they said, ishma, we will do and we will hear, before the giving of the Torah. I'm also very honored that Orthodox Conundrum Commentary passed 1,000 subscribers last week and has continued growing since then. So please help us continue to reach more and more people by subscribing and sharing with people who you think will find it engaging. It's free and you can cancel at any time. So go to the link in the description of this podcast to get your subscription today. And finally, remember that JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high quality, professional, and popular podcast. Rabbi Yitzchak Breidowitz is a Magid Shir in Yeshivat or Sameach and Rav of Kehillat or Sameach. He was formerly the Rav of Woodside Synagogue Ahavat Torah in Silver Spring and made Aliyah with his Rebetzin in April 2010. He writes and speaks extensively on the intersection of halakha and contemporary issues in medical, family, and legal ethics. Just one point before we begin the conversation. During the first six or seven minutes, we had some minor technical difficulties. So there are a few words, not many, which are a bit hard to understand. We cleared it up after that, and the rest of the interview proceeded without any problem. So please bear with us and know that the final 55 minutes have no technical issues. Rabbi Yitzhak Breidowitz, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you, Rabbi Khan. It's
0: uh, great to see you again. Um, I and my son Moshe have very fond memories
1: when you were his uh, Rebbe and uh, Beit Shemesh. Yes, I have wonderful memories of Moshe as well. We often talk about the time that Moshe came to our house on a and wearing a lion costume. And Moshe and our son Yaakov were very close, but Yaakov completely flipped out seeing him started going, no, 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 no. And to this day, Moshe and I have <laughs> laughed about that many times. Yaakov, who now is in basic training in the Israeli army. Well, he should be safe. And Rosh Him, I think uh, I've seen the picture. Okay, thank you. Amen. So, we're going to speak about the integration of the ultra Orthodox or Haredi community into Israeli society, particularly in the aftermath of October 7th. This is obviously a somewhat controversial topic in some quarters, but I think it's also important and timely and needs to be addressed in a forthright manner. So, let's start off, if you don't mind offering perhaps the Haredi perspective as best as you can represent it for us. And I'm not implying in anything here that you necessarily agree or disagree with it. I wanted to know, what are some of the major reasons, Rabbi Breidowitz, that Haredim often seem to avoid engagement with much of Israeli secular and national religious society in general? And we'll get to the army in particular afterwards.
0: Yeah, so I'm not going to address the army right now. And of course, I am in no way a, a spokesman for the Haredi world. And in some ways, the Haredi world is not monolithic either. But, but certainly, there is a general sense that there needs to be a certain amount of insulation from general society, you know, for a variety of reasons. Uh, number one, uh, the values are often in conflict. Charedim uh, consider the observance of mitzvahs and the of haphorah uh, to be the cornerstones of life, uh, even at the expense of a certain degree of economic success. And various sort of material accomplishments, uh, the prevailing zeitgeist of, Most westernized societies is uh, to build up a strong economic base, material comfort. And also, as we find, many morality issues are quite challenging. So you have a secular society that may support abortion, may support gay and lesbian rights, uh, which are really inimical to the traditional Jewish family structure. So I think both in terms of uh, the emphasis on materialism and the undermining of traditional family values, and as well as the, the 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 undeniable fact that a majority of the non-Haredi population do not keep Shabbat and do not necessarily uh, keep Kashrut and Tarat and Mishpacha, it's understandable in many ways that if I'm raising family and I want to raise my family with certain values, I will have a certain degree of separation from that society. Again, I'm not necessarily endorsing the full degree of this just explaining why many and maybe most Haredi people feel that we need to have a certain amount of separation.
1: Do you feel, Rabbi Breidowitz, that the way that that's manifest in Israel is fundamentally different from the way that the same community or a parallel community, the ultra-Orthodox community outside of Israel, for example, in the United States, might exhibit those values of staying separate? Is it the same or is it different? Well, uh, once again,
0: it depends on the community, really. In many, many communities, it's quite different. Um, I'll give you an example from my own life experience many years ago. I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, which was a small Orthodox community. Uh, But I attended an Orthodox day school, but the majority of my classmates were not Orthodox because in those days, they didn't have conservative day school. Uh, so a conservative parent who wanted a Jewish education for their kid would choose an Orthodox day school. And my day school was also coed. So even though there was Orthodox conservative reform, we kind of all mixed. We were very, you know, well integrated. We interacted with each other. Uh, we were friends with each other. Uh, we would go to each other's houses, and if you were careful in touch with it, you would simply not eat certain things or whatever it would be. But there certainly were friendships, there certainly were connections. As children, we were connected with all types of kids. And as adults, you know, people interacted. In many, many ways, I think orthodoxy, Harediism, whatever you want to call it, is to some degree a victim of its own success. As we grew larger, as the yeshiva world grew bigger and bigger and bigger, as the world grew bigger, we could then afford to create our own enclaves and our own separate communities and our own separate schools. We've never imagined today in a yeshiva community, even in the States, to create a day school in which uh, you know conservative kids go uh, even even non-Yeshiva kids go. So in many, many ways, my own formative experience was one of uh, integration, of working within a larger community. I, I think that did foster some very positive values of Abba Israel and Ardut, which I think are lacking today. On the other hand, one might make the argument that the fervor of religious commitment might have been uh, reduced to some of the great because we're kind of mixing with the odds. So if you go to Lakewood, if you go to Muncie, I think you'll still see that kind of separation. Uh, You go to a place like Baltimore less so, and um, certainly smaller towns are going to be less so. But the truth of the matter is, I think Eretz Yisrael is in a class by itself. That even if you compare it to Lakewood and Muncie, I think the degree of polarization that we have in Eretz Yisrael is very, very extreme. I, I don't, I don't even mean that negatively. I'm just, I'm just saying it descriptively. And part of that, though, I think, goes back to deep historical roots, the conflict of the Shofar Yashan uh, back in the 19th century, the beginning of political Zionism, in which there was a sense that Eretz Israel was literally robbed of its communities as it became more of a secular state. And that created a tremendous negative history of bad blood. And in many ways, a lot of it is we're fighting the battles of the 19th century and early 20th century. And I think that has tainted and that has affected relationships with the less religious world to this very, very day. and uh, The Kuddinich once said in a different context, and other people have said it as well, we have new challenges. We can't automatically kind of fight the battles of the uh, the olden days because those battles might be over. But I think to some degree, to some degree, I mean, it's more complicated than I'm I'm making it, uh, but I think a lot of the hostility that we sometimes find vis-a-vis the non-religious is a bit of a legacy uh, of the conflicts of the ish of and the emerging zionist movement which is really over 100 years ago well over 100 years ago and that still affects uh how we deal with them we look you know we often look at them as the enemy the enemy that has to be fought off uh, by every possible way instead of you know recognizing that we might be able to collaborate <laughs> I don't want to get myself in too much trouble here. But, you know, in many, many ways, obviously, we're going through an 8th Sarah. We're going through a a war. Uh, We have ILM that are dying every day. Uh, We have hostages. Uh, We had the massacres of October 7th. And, you know, we don't even know what the future is going to bring, although we hope and we pray that there should be Shalom. But if every cloud has a silver lining, I think one of the silver linings of this very, very difficult time that we're going through is that perhaps we are reaching a greater idea of Achlus and Abbas Yisrael and reaching out and connecting and some of the barriers between Haredi world and uh, the non-Haredi world, even the Hilori world, are are collapsing to some degree. And uh, I think, I personally think that that is a good thing. I know that some people are a little worried worried about it. Uh, I see it as somewhat of a positive development, a very positive development in many ways. And my hope would be that when things do get back to normal, we don't lose the momentum of the Achthus and the bridge building that we've managed to uh,
1: achieve since October 7th. Well, Robert Bradowitz, let me ask you about the words you used to define the reasons for some of that Haredi separatism. You mentioned a lack of emphasis on materialism, you mentioned family values, you mentioned certain religious ideals about Shabbos, Kashrut, Tarrata Mishpacha, which the secular Zionist society or any secular Jewish society may not care about to the same degree. But isn't that true also for what we might call the Dati Lumi or the modern Orthodox or centrist Orthodox world? They also would profess, whether it's true or not is a different question, but they also would profess to not be into materialism, to care deeply about halakha, to care about the same family values. So why would it be that those communities would choose to integrate, whereas the Charedi community would choose instead to separate themselves?
0: Well, again, I, I think that's exactly the point. Uh, if we were to ask, like, what is the essential distinction between a Charedi community and say, a more modern Orthodox community, whether you call it Dati Mi or whether you call it modern Orthodox? I think this would be part of the issue. That is, um, the hashtafa of whatever you call modern orthodoxy, whether you call it modern, whether you call it centrist, you know, there are different names that are going around. Now, of course, in Eretz that even means a particular nuance in terms of Zionism, but let's factor that out for a moment. Uh, but one of the major philosophical differences is the notion of engagement with an external world, meaning to say that modern orthodoxy or more modern orthodoxy understands that there are challenges and dangers with that engagement. But on the other hand, it's a worthwhile risk to take uh, because of uh, the notion of Torah and Derek Heretz, or the notion of Torah Umada or the notion of of applying the values of Torah in a modern societal context. And therefore, they are willing to take the risks. Like every gambler, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Uh, The risks are very, very significant. Kids go off the derech. Uh, kids might reject the Torah in favor of the values of modernity. Charedim uh, believe more. Again, I'm obviously overgeneralizing here. Encircling the wagon, they see they see modernity as a danger. They see it as a threat, and as a result, they do not want to engage in things that may be injurious to their kids. The problem with that is that life is never a risk-free proposition. If engagement with modernity creates dangers, disengagement creates uh, equal dangers. Because at some point, kids find out about what's going on in that big, bad world. And if they haven't been given the tools to deal with it, it may be very, very destructive. So, you know, I have no solution to this because I can see this as almost A-Lo Dibri, Kim Hayam I mean, both of these are legitimate ways in which you try to raise your family in the best way that you can. Um, But there are going to be dangers either way. So I I can respect a parent who makes his decision to go in one direction or another direction. Now, i will also say that from a Haredi perspective, and again, I'm not speaking of kids like writers, I'm just articulating a perspective, Uh, many Haredim feel that the more modern Orthodox, even though they profess commitments to Torah and mitzvot, there are those who would describe that commitment as really being less uh, less deep. Uh, the, the, the amount of hours of learning will be less. Uh, the and mitzvot might be less. Again, I'm not even addressing if this is true or false. I'm not interested in doing that right now. I'm just articulating the way many might view modern Orthodox. So even though both groupings may give lip service to fundamentally the same values, the Haredim don't always see the modern Orthodox as living by those values. So that's a difference as well.
1: Okay. Thank you for articulating that. And I do understand that you're speaking in generalities and not necessarily expressing your own position here. You're trying to express the position that they would articulate, or at least many of them would articulate. And along with that, I'd like to then move into probably the most controversial question that there is when it comes to integration, and that is with regard to the Israeli army. And I'll start with The specific aspect you just mentioned, the fear of integration as a reason not to join the army, when it comes to fear of integration as a reason not to go, say, to university or to be involved economically with certain sectors of secular Israeli society, you could speak about, in a general sense, it could affect society. But ultimately, that really is every individual's choice how much integration that person wants to have or that family wants to have. But people who believe in serving in the Israeli army would argue, I would think, that When you decide, as a Haredi person, that I don't want to put myself or my child in danger by sending him to the Israeli army, you're also, however, affecting other people by, number one, not serving, simply not doing the job that needs to be done. And that means that other people, second of all, have to pick up that slack instead. So could you explain the Haredi position, as best as you can articulate it, as to why serving the army is not something which is a lekarkhila, something which is so desired in that community?
0: Yeah, uh, well, again, uh, this is one of the most painful and divisive issues uh, in Israeli society. And here, uh, it's very, very difficult for me to separate my personal feelings from my description of of a lot of the Haredi communities. I try to kind of split my brain uh, and and, and address it. Um, Obviously, uh, if you go back to uh, 1948, uh, when the first uh, government of Israel was established, Ben-Gurion. So uh, in order to get the support of uh, the religious parties, Ben-Gurion did agree to a, a draft exemption for full-time uh, yeshiva students. And at the time, I believe there was something like 400 full-time yeshiva students in the entire country. And Ben-Gurion was of the belief that they would get smaller and smaller and smaller. He thought it would be an insignificant problem that would just vanish in five to ten years. And unfortunately, Well, fortunately, I would say. He was proven wrong, and Famous uh, the last words. community. Right, it exploded. Baruch Hashem, it exploded and became uh, very, very big. But as a result, Ben Gurion uh, never imagined that there would be thousands and thousands of people who would be given this exemption, like for years and years and years and years. But so be it. Uh, there was that status quo agreement, which was you know, more or less the law until very, very recently, uh, when things get uh, get changed. Now, let me just remind uh, you and the audience uh, that even the United States, when the United States had a draft uh, during World War II and even through the Vietnam, a lot of the Vietnam War, uh, full-time theological students, whether Christian or Jewish, uh, were exempt. Uh, <laughs> that is why yeshiva enrollment uh, in the 60s and 70s was at its height, because it was a way of getting out of the draft. But it was understood, even by secular society, that uh, people who are involved in full-time uh, theological study are doing God's work, so to speak, and they also bring God's blessing uh, down. So the notion that somehow there's something unique about Israel exempting Yeshiva students for so many years, uh, in truth, that was a commonplace of virtually every society that had a draft. But the thing is this. Uh, Ravara Lichtenstein, who, of course, is not, was not Haredi, well, he was Haredi in his Torah observance, but he was not Haredi in philosophy, Rana Lichtenstein is one of the great uh, Rashi Yeshiva of the Tati Liumi worlds. I consider him also a God of as well, uh, did articulate very convincingly the philosophy of Hester uh, based on what Mojra Rabbeinu told Ruben and God, and uh, 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 your brethren are uh, going to war, and you're going to be here, how can you not participate in the defense of the nation? So that's a very powerful argument. Because if defending the Jewish people and defending Eretz Yisrael is called a Luchamesh Mitzvah, then everybody is obligated to participate in Luchamesh Mitzvah. What is the Haredi argument not to participate? So I think the argument goes the following. I think the argument basically says that if there was a genuine manpower shortage, we didn't have enough people who are willing to fight in combat. And people were needed for an emergency, Hina he says, hey, there would be an obligation on everybody to participate. I believe even if Chaim Kinevsky briefly had a gun in the 1948 strike, and he was in charge of a hill uh, for a short time. But the reality of, of things is that there actually is not a manpower shortage, uh, that in point of fact, there are many that actually volunteer for combat duty. Uh, some religious, the Hester boys, and some not religious. And uh, most uh, military positions are not necessarily pikuach nefesh combat situations. So as a result, if there is no security, there's no security, then we are permitted to consider other factors such as the impact on our religious life, uh, the impact on uh, Torah and mitzvahs and the like. And I think, although maybe it's not articulated as way that the Haredi argument is that there is not a genuine security need for this 100% participation in the draft. I mean, people don't realize there are a lot of other people who are exempt from military service under the laws of Israel, and not all of of them are are learning in yeshiva. Now, the theological argument, which I think is questionable, but has to be stated, is that learning Torah itself is the greatest source of defense for Yisrael, And therefore, those who are full-time learning Torah are contributing to the military effort by bringing down siyata to Now, that of course is true, but I just want to point out that there's a certain leap here because as I think you implied in your question, it's not just full-time yeshiva students that are discouraged from military service, it's the Haredi population generally. Now, not everybody in the Haredi population is involved in full-time learning. So, you can't really use the full time learning thing as an overall cover for everybody else. So, then you have to go to the backup argument that there's not a genuine state of emergency given the lack of a manpower shortage and the fact that much of what happens in the army is very destructive to religious identity. Going back to 1948, it's very, very clear that Ben Gurion envisioned the IDF not merely as a defense force, but as a kind of homogenization of Israeli society, that people should have common experiences, they should go through something together. He thought that would create a national cohesiveness, that group identity was an extremely important part of his vision in the army. Unfortunately, the very thing that he saw as a positive, many Haredim see that Spadavka destruction, the notion of kind of assimilating into the values of a secular society. So, as a result, there are good reasons why they feel that the army is a dangerous, spiritually dangerous environment. The only question is, how does that override the halachic imperatives of milhames Mitzvah? So there you either go to the idea of full-time Talmud Torah, and then you'll ask me, well, who says full-time Talmud Torah is exempt from Nochames Mitzvah? So, one of the arguments that's made, and I don't want to get too technical, is based on combining two passages in the Rambam, the Shmita Shemitah V'yaybel. In Shemitah V'Yael, the Rambam discusses the role of Shaved Levi as the full time teachers of Am Yisrael, and he makes a statement that Shaved Levi is exempt from all Nochama because of their spiritual duties. And in the Sifri, which is the Makor of the Rambam, it says they're exempt even from Nochama Mitzvah. That's a very big fetish. Even milchamah's mitzvah, shevet levi is exempt. And then there's another Rambam that says that the idea of shevet levi extends to anyone that gives themselves over to avodah Hashem. So if you combine the exemption of milchamah's mitzvah of shevet levi with the Rambam's expanded definition of shevet levi, you might construct a halachic exemption for people who are living like shevet levi. I'll just leave it for you to question, well, does that cover every Haredi family in every Haredi? Even if you assume the license of this expansion of Shabbat uh does everybody qualify? So this is a very, very painful question for me personally, and I, I, I do struggle with it. But as I say, uh, many of the Haredi world consider uh, the army as such a dangerous environment for the Ruchnius. Of their children, that they feel that uh, that overrides uh, these imperatives, the various reasons that I suggested, and this is true even though the army has created Haredi units, not Charedi and and like. Yeah, but they say uh we don't consider that to be a suitable environment uh, for our children. Now, in general, society, many people many people have debated whether Israel even needs a draft. Uh, many people feel. Just as in the U.S., they could staff the army with volunteers, which kind of underscores the idea that there's not a genuine manpower shortage.
1: Thank you for that comprehensive summary of these attitudes, comprehensive in the sense of this being a podcast rather than a sheer. Obviously, in a different context, there's plenty more to say about all those ideas. I'd like to push back, not at what you're saying, but at some of these arguments and see how you would respond. And again, let me emphasize that you are not necessarily offering your own opinions on these matters, but you're instead giving some common Haredi attitudes when it comes to participation in the army. In terms of the manpower shortage, now that we are existing not in a theoretical situation where we're afraid of a potential attack, but actually in a post-October 7th world where Israel is literally at war, the idea that there isn't a manpower shortage, I think, might be difficult to defend. For example, the Israeli army just extended the regular army service from two years and eight months to three years. They extended miluim. That means that reserve duty will now take place for a longer period of time and also be mandatory more often. And in addition to that, there are about 1,300 people, I think, who are in pre-army programs, some of them yeshivot, religious Zionist yeshivot, who were called up early and are not able to finish their year because the army needs them. In that sense, Even if we say, well, now the army has its manpower because they're taking people for longer and because they're taking people from yeshivot who otherwise would not have been serving now, so now they don't need people, at the same time, I think there might be an element of fairness of, well, there isn't a manpower shortage perhaps because they're making people serve much more than they would have. I can speak on a personal level. My son-in-law was in yeshiva in a kolel learning for smicha, a religious Zionist yeshiva, and when it was... October 7th, he was called up and was in Gaza for the next 80 days or 90 days. And now, thankfully, he's back home again, though he's being called up again in March for who knows why and who knows how long. So someone who would say, well, they don't need Haredi draft anymore because there are enough people, I would counter The only reason they have enough people is because of a lack of fairness, because people who should be living their lives in other contexts, including, like my son-in-law, learning in yeshiva, are no longer able to do so. How do you think they would answer that in terms of the fairness argument that, yes, they have enough people, but only because everybody else is doing more than their share?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, the fairness argument is uh, a very, very strong argument in many, many ways, and it obviously resonates with uh, many people. Uh, And I'm not sure I can answer it from the perspective of the person questioning it. But I think what the Haredi world would basically say is this. Uh, We, based on our belief system uh, that the army would seriously have a detrimental impact on our our children, then we have more of a claim not to serve than people who don't have that system of belief. Uh, Meaning, if you have two people and one person feels that if my kid's going into the army, they will not be lifting the values of our of our religious life. And the other feels that that's not going to be a negative consequence. Then maybe there is a swara that that burden should be borne by the person whose family is going to suffer less as a result. So it's kind of, I, I, I understand this is a little circular. But I think the argument basically is if the army is not such a big deal for you and it's a bigger deal for me, then maybe the, the burden should be on you. Now, I do want to make another point, although it's not relevant to anything you're asking, but I have to stick it in almost like a conversion. I, I want to say that the one thing that is absolutely essential is that Karadian must have karata to the people who do serve. Because yes, it is true that many are taking on a burden that should rightfully be spread across a broader section of the population. And if it's not, because we might have good reasons. Now let's say let's even assume we have good reasons for it. But that does not negate the absolute imperative of HaKarat HaTov for those who are not only disrupting their lives, but risking their lives uh, for fighting for Eretz Israel. And uh, therefore, the one thing that I will speak personally and utterly repudiate is any type of disparagement of those who are serving, because whether they're religious and even if they're non-religious, uh, they are doing God's work, and uh, they deserve our great But again, but having said that, from a religious perspective, if I feel this is going to be destructive to my family, you feel less so, I might have an argument that you should take the risk rather
1: than me. I could argue back if I wanted to. And again, I'm arguing against the argument, not against you. I can't repeat that enough that I would yeah. say, I'm also worried about my children in the army. I just feel they have no choice because this is a chiyuv, this is an obligation. It's not that I'm less worried about it. It's more that I put a greater stock perhaps than those people who are making that argument in the importance of milchamed mitzvah, the importance of pikuach nefesh, the importance of serving Qal Yisrael in that way. So I might say that that, that argument for me personally doesn't resonate. Okay. You know, listen, I, I hear it. I I, I can't
0: I can't. See. I understand.
1: It, it totally resonates <laughs> for me that I'm just
0: trying to... Yeah, you know, maybe, and maybe I'm not a proper defender here, but I'm just trying to explain
1: what is right. in people's what is in people's minds. Let me ask about the second question in terms of that Rambam and Hilchot Shmita V'Yovel at the very end that you referenced, where the Rambam says that Shavit Levi is exempt, and also that people can join Shavit Levi by being like Shavit Levi in the sense that they are full time worshipers and servers of God. One of the questions that people often say is that that may be true, but Many in the Haredi world have claimed that it's not just that they are exempt, but rather their Torah learning is actually protective. Not just because all mitzvot are rezuchut for Klay Yisrael, a merit for the people of Israel in a general sense, but that specifically learning Torah is their battle. They are, so to speak, in the army in their own way. They are fighting by bringing down God's Shefa, God's influence into the world, by learning. And my personal feeling about that is that those Gemaras that do express this idea, are almost entirely agadic. that means non-legal, rather than halachic legal sections of the Talmud, and we generally do not rule halachically based on agadic sections of the Talmud. They may also be referring to a world in which there is absolute gilo a redemptive world or a deemed world, rather than our world, and to me the most important part is the halachic issue. I'm curious how you would respond to this, that the Rambam, for example, says that if a city, it builds a wall and they put a tax on the people to build a wall, a protective wall against enemies, a Talmud Chacham is exempt from paying for that wall because his Torah protects him. And I've heard this used as a source that Torah protects the learner and Klal Yisrael. To me, it sounds like it actually proves sort of the opposite. It protects only the learner. He does not have to contribute to the wall because he's learning and therefore he personally is protected. The city, however, still has to build the wall. There's no That's idea cool. that, oh, if there's a Tamil Chacham in the city, don't worry about the wall. It's saying, of course you build the wall, but he does not have to pay the tax for the wall because he personally is protected. So my feeling is that Maybe Torah protects the learner, but to only care about that is quote-unquote selfish because you're not protecting anybody else. Do you agree with my argument or do you disagree? Uh,
0: yes, I, I think your argument is quite strong. I mean, uh, I think your proof, uh, your analysis of the wall situation is right on point. The city has to build the wall in spite of the Talmud Khatam that's learning. Talmud Khatam doesn't have to contribute because he, he does not need the wall. I'm just repeating what you said. The implication is the rest of the he needs the wall. Uh, and of course, uh, for a person to say, hey, I don't need to help Am Yisrael because I'm doing fine, <laughs> that's totally the opposite of Abbas Yisrael and Achdus and Arbus and all of those beautiful concepts. We, Badafka cannot go through our lives by saying, as long as I'm okay, you know, who cares? Shalom uh, alai That's the opposite of what Am Yisrael is. I mean, let me, just, let, let me just point out the obvious point. I mean, the door in Amidwar itself. Uh, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu assembled armies to fight Amalek, to fight Midian. You know, and why didn't they? This is the door of on Torah. Why didn't they just learn and Hashem would take care of the enemies? So Moshe Rabbeinu had to have wars. Yoshua had to have wars. Governor and Malik had to have wars. So, so the concept that by learning Torah you don't need uh, a military effort is obviously not ambassador in Jewish Yes, of course, as a Maimon in Hashem. Of course, I believe that Torah brings blessing to the world. Torah brings shi'at to That military effort would be unavailing without, uh, without Torah and mitzvahs. Of course, of course, of course. And we have to realize that all the time. But to simply say that it removes the need for the ishtadlus of, of an effective military uh, makes no sense. And it's contrary to, to the Jewish history as recorded in the Torah. And this recorded enough, so I, I don't buy it. But but if there's one aspect in which I I do think is psychologically important, and that is that I I do think it's very desirable that those who are learning should envision themselves as being mishkatev in the in the military effort. Meaning, they should have a conscious intention that may my learning be a sukhut for Yisrael, may it help the them because I think that in itself can inform a certain type of connection in which, you know, I have my job, you have your job, we're on the same page, we're working together. You now instead of looking at the IDF as the other, whatever it is, we're kind of are uh, we are working together. So psychologically, if not halakhically, I, I do think that's actually a helpful kind of meditation to have as people are doing their Torah and their mitzvahs.
1: That makes a lot of sense. In fact, I'm going to throw out a proposal to you. I'm curious what you think of this. I heard this from one of my rebbeim. I'm not going to say his name in case he doesn't want me to. And I also thought of something similar myself, almost to have what I have called a Torah Corps. Imagine if the Israeli army, in conjunction with Haredi Rosh yeshiva, were to create some form of official service that involves yeshivot. Meaning, if the Haredi community says that their learning is protective in a general or specific sense, and they're afraid of being too integrated, let's actually make it real. Let's ask them to put their money where their mouth is. Let's create a Torah core where people go on the bases, build a base medrash under the auspices of Haredi Rosh yeshiva who will make sure that the hashkafa there is one which agrees with their worldview. And people will be serving. They will have the same hours as soldiers. My son, as I just mentioned, is in basic training. He has to get up at five in the morning. Sometimes he has to get up in the middle of the night. I don't mean it has to be something, the shame being crazy, but extreme hours, make sure that they're learning three siddharim a day. They don't have long breaks. They don't have long benahasiddharim. They don't have long manim, which right now is about 11 weeks a year in the regular vote. have it much shorter because if they're going to see themselves as contributing genuinely with their Torah learning, okay, let's make it real. Let's make sure the time you invest in your Torah learning is actually under the auspices of the military with the same consequences, and your job is to create that Torah environment and thereby make the army a holier place, while at the same time, your learning will be more intense, it will be more... Time-filled, it will be uh, more efficient because you're doing it according to the same rules. Obviously, it has to be worked out. But what do you think of something like that so that it's not just lip service, but it's actually part of real service?
0: Yep. Yeah, so, so I have two I have two comments to that. My first comment is, I actually think it's a brilliant idea. I think it's a way of bringing ruchmius into the army and it's a way of aqris nam yisrael in which we understand that the lima da torah is part and maybe the most important part of our military strategy. Uh, I believe that this is was the authentic view of the Jewish army going back to Yahushua when the Malach tells him, you know, uh, you know, MSU Levato, the carbon summit, and you know, it was, you know, the idea that this is it. And I think it would also create a greater discipline. I mean, this is really part of another thought, but part of the problem in the yeshiva world is actually a lack of discipline and structure in which a number of people are hanging around in pizza places. And it's very hard to invoke Sheva blade paradigms when you're dealing with Bainas Moderns and Timing Limit and and the like. And this proposal would uh, very much address that. I think it would make the learning better. It would foster Achtos. Uh, It would bring Ruchnius into the army. And I think that, while uh, the the Timonim would look at the religious world in a much more positive way. So there's a lot to commend it. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. My second comment is that the Haredi leadership would absolutely never accept it. And uh, the reason is... This goes back really. I mean, let me go back to Sheyrut Lumi. Uh, this goes back all the way to the 1950s when the proposal of mandatory Sherut Lumi for women and, uh, the Chazinish famously, you know, said, uh, Yehareg Uh, and the question becomes like, what is so bad about Sheyrut Lu for women? will me. They go to hospitals. They go to nursing homes. They, whatever it is. These are things that girls, young girls, do anyway. So what's the problem with Shayrit Shef- building entertainment will me? So the Khazin said about women. Now okay, again, it's not necessarily applicable to men, but women that to create programs which are under the control of the government is always dangerous because even if it starts off in a kosher miscarriage, it could easily slide into something else. So, by analogy, my guess would be that a lot of the Haredi world or the Haredi leadership would be very, very suspicious of folding in yeshiva learning within the context of a, um, of a military or a government program. So, I think it's a very, very brilliant idea, and it's really maybe the, uh, the next step towards trying to create an integrated Jewish life in Eretz Israel. but I think it would meet with a tremendous
1: amount of resistance. I unfortunately think you're probably right. I think that perhaps one of the problems that people in the Dati Lumi and the secular Zionist world have when looking at the Haredim is that often when we look at solutions to some of these problems, Haredi participation, perhaps the Haredim don't see it as a problem, but problems that people on the other side may see as problems the Haredi leadership often feels as you just mentioned somewhat rejectionist I don't mean that in a disrespectful way but as you said it might be a good idea but there are too many reasons that it's hard to believe they would actually go along with it and I think that part of the reason that people have a difficult time understanding the Haredi position is because of perhaps this is unfair but what seems to me sometimes not to be looking for reasons how can we do it but looking for reasons to say no that won't work it won't work no matter what i'll give just another example that i thought about in terms of the first objection you mentioned to the army that it's not a proper spiritual environment so I was talking to my kids not that long ago. I said, you know what we should do? We should have, along with the Haredi leadership, the Haredi political leadership, there are a lot of people in the Haredi world, in the government, the Rosh Shiva, to make a new division of the army, not Nacha Haredi, which has often been, I believe, rightly or wrongly, for people who haven't made it in the Haredi world, but there's Givati, there's Golani, there's Kfir, we're going to call it Haredi, for lack of a better term. We're going to call it the Haredi division, which is an authentic Haredi division for people, not those who didn't make it in yeshivot, those people who really did. Now they're 24 years old, they've learned for six years in yeshiva, and now they're going to do military service, but it's going to be a division. Any objection they have, we're going to try to overcome it in conjunction with Rosh Hashiva. The food will be mahadrin. It will not be a co-ed unit. Whatever other problem there is, the cultural aspects of Zionism will make sure that this is run only by Haredi commanders, etc. cetera. So everyone says, of course, I'll never accept that. And part of the problem I have is it looks like too often the Haredi world, again, I'm being reductionist, but the Haredi world is looking for reasons to say no rather than looking for reasons to say yes. And I think a lot of people are disturbed by that.
0: Yeah. Well, I hear you. You know, um, if I may quote a very unlikely source, I I remember hearing a speech by Yoir Lapid, who I do not endorse or support in any way. But he made a very, very interesting speech a few years ago in which he turned to the Haredim and the Knesset and said, you know, you have won. And because you have won, you now have a responsibility for the state. Meaning, for most of uh, Israel's history, the Haredi world was a relatively small, insignificant group of people uh, who were being picked upon by the more powerful uh, Zionists and the like. And therefore, they had to develop a kind of rejectionist, policy of fighting against people that were trying to destroy them. And they didn't really have to deal with how to run a state because the state was run by other actors and therefore they didn't have to do anything but protect their own turf. Yair Lapid, who again, I, I do not endorse in any way, but he made an interesting point. He said it in a very uh, pr- provocative uh, and articulate way that once you become a significant part of society, and you're no longer being threatened. You're now secure. You have your place. That does create a certain sense of responsibilities that you otherwise wouldn't have. So, for example, uh, a Haredi society should not only be concerned with Torah and mitzvahs, which of course it should be, but like, you know, what's the position on environment, on healthcare, on housing? I mean, what what do Haredi parties offer uh, their constituents on those particular issues? I mean, there's no accident that in Ramat Beit Shemesh, uh, or Beit notwithstanding, you know, the large Haredi population, um, you had a, a mayor, you know, elected. Obviously, there were a lot of closet Haredim who wanted to be sure that garbage collection would, would be effective and, and everything else. So your point that for that the Haredim tend to, you know, generalize, you know, they, I hate to say the Haredim, but the large parts of the Haredi culture are into saying no rather than working on common solutions, you know, it stems from, again, like I mentioned at the beginning, yesteryear's battles where there were a beleaguered minority that had to protect their turf, as opposed to looking for ways of improving society as, as a whole. So part of it is the fallacy of fighting yesterday's battles. And part of it is, frankly, fear, meaning we got a system. It seems to be working well. We can debate that as well. Well for our group we have to be very very careful not to introduce you know unknown variables whose effects might not be you know predictable again i'm not endorsing it i'm just explaining it as far as i, I understand the best that
1: i can let me ask you a question which is tangential but related. I want to ask you, what is necessary, in your opinion, Robert Breidowitz, to create Gedolim Batorah And the reason that this is actually connected to what I've been speaking about is that in some private conversations I've had with people about the need on the Haredi side, to stay in yeshiva, to keep their students in yeshivo for as long as possible. One of the arguments that has been articulated is that if we want to have true gedolim b'torah, truly great Torah scholars, we can't take them out and bring them to the army. You can't take that time off from learning. And even if you say that we'll take a small group of them and leave them the exceptional students in the yeshiva, they say, first of all, it's hard to know who was the exceptional student. It's hard to test for that. And second of all, it will change the avirah, the atmosphere of the yeshivot, such that the Torah learning, even of these exceptional scholars, will be negatively affected. I know on the other hand, someone told me a few weeks ago, a friend of mine, I had not heard that, but he told me that Rabbi Yehuda Amital, Rav Lichtenstein's colleague, who was the other Rosh Yeshiva in the Gush, he apparently countered this argument by saying, well, during the Shoah, a lot of people took five years off, and we still had gedolimba Batorah, so it's not necessarily true that you can't take a few years off and be in the army. That's how he was quoted to me. I want to know your opinion about that.
0: Yeah, actually, that, that's interesting. You know, that that analogy never even occurred to me. But, but indeed, that, that is the case. There were great, great people who had been getolled before the war or on the verge of it. And it was a whole big, major interruption uh, at a minimum. And yet they continued. Again, it, it's hard to know. Everybody's every person is different and every person is affected differently. But but the notion that uh, at least a certain amount of service for colleagues fail uh, should not be Mazak, the capacity of a person to become a goddell, I believe that is the case. I mean, you know, um, we have, I mean, I'll give you an, an analogy from another area. Somebody c- c- complained to the stipler that when they got married, their wife was uh, asking too many things of them. Therefore, they felt there was bitter aura and a lot again, how can they learn if their wife makes them do this and that? So the stipler said, that when you emulate Hashem's need of chesed, you become closer to God, and therefore Hashem will give you the siyat and ishmael, that whatever hours you devoted to chesed, you will make up. Meaning you'll be able to accomplish in less time, what would have taken you more time. And that's how the Kodesh Baruch works with Talmud Torah and siyat and ishmael. And I think maybe by analogy, we could apply a similar type of construct here. I am here to serve Klal Yisrael. I'm here to help help my fellow Jewish people to help Eretz Yisrael to protect uh, other yidin from sakana. Uh, certainly, Hashem is not going to take away my ability to grow in Torah because of my acts of chesed. So I think in many many ways, uh, you know, within reason, within reason, you can't like maybe give 20 years to the army, but within the normal reason, I think, you know, your Bidolim can still be there. And in fact, the I think the army actually creates situations where you can develop, you know, particular expertise and how to apply halakhic concepts to difficult military situations. Military halakha is quite intricate, quite interesting, quite deep, quite complicated. And in fact, we could develop all cadre of Oskins through their experience in the art.
1: Okay. I want to ask you about something that you said at the very beginning of our conversation, when you said that you don't want to get in trouble. And the reason I'm asking you about <laughs> that is because you're not the only person who has said something like that to me. I've heard some people say in discussing the perhaps reluctance of people in the Haredi world to talk about some of these issues, they'll say something like, Right, they're afraid that their kid won't get a shidduch, won't be able to get married if they say the wrong thing, or if they say something that's inappropriate according to that worldview, they might get a rock thrown through their living room window. Perhaps this is completely unfair, and I don't know. When I talk about things that may or may not be controversial in the centrist Orthodox world or that'si lumi world in which I live, people might not like it, but I'm not afraid of my kids not getting a shidduch. I'm not afraid of getting a rock thrown through my window, and yet. When I talk to people in the Haredi world about that, I hear this fear over and over again. I'm not going to pretend that other communities outside the Haredi world are so tolerant. That is not necessarily true. There are many instances of intolerance in all communities. But this claim is something which I hear so often. I wanted to try to understand it better. This inability or refusal to discuss things forthrightly, I'm not sure exactly where it comes from, and I find it disturbing. I'm curious if you could help me understand it better, that phenomenon.
0: Well, you know, again, uh, you're asking me hard questions because in many, many ways, I I don't want to defend things that I consider to be improper. Um, I do think the atmosphere of censorship and fear and intolerance, which prevents you from discussing things, is actually not a positive development. Uh, Even, you know, a a moderate uh, voice like Mishkaka magazine often gets in trouble because they have some article about you know, maybe Ben could get jobs or something, whatever, and it turns into, well, oh, you know, it's put in harem or, or, or whatever, whatever it is. And I think that's very, 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 very unfortunate. Uh, part of it is people are scared to speak their mind because uh, the way other people are going to react. But in reality, uh, there are many, many ideas. That, you know, the solid majority, Nixon used to talk about the silent majority of Americans. I think in the 30 world, uh, there actually might be a lot more tolerance and it's often articulated because there is a minority of people who are overly zealous, sometimes L'shem shamayim, sometimes not L'shem shamayim, and that creates a chilling effect, that creates kind of a censorship uh, on other people who are willing to consider uh, different ideas. There was a rabbi in, in uh, again, in Beit Shemesh, I don't remember his name, but a hush of a person, a well-regarded person, we spoke about Parnassa or trade schools, and, and he was castigated and criticized and pilloried and uh, you know losing his credentials as a credible you know Torah voice uh, for things that were very, very moderate states. Um, I will say I do think things are changing a little bit as you have more and more American or Western Olim, Anglo Olim, who are Haredi and their yeshiva shah gone to uh, yeshivas and they're committed to the values of Haredi, but they're used to a greater openness and a greater willingness to discuss issues, I think slowly but surely, I think we're beginning to see changes. Uh, And I tell people who are contemplating Aliyah but are worried about the educational systems, I say, listen, maybe in the immediate short term we're still going to have some of those problems, but I think uh, over the five to ten years there are going to be some major changes in the Haredi world. I regard them as positive, others might regard them as negative, but changes for sure are coming. And I think it'll be closer to the model that uh, I'm used to, at least back in the United States, where even the Haredi world was a bit more open and receptive to discussing issues and considering alternatives.
1: Okay, let me ask you another question. As long as you're talking about censorship in the Haredi world, do you, Rabbi which think that there is a place for censorship in some areas? The reason I ask this is that classically censorship was de rigueur, standard practice in orthodox circles, because there were certain books that were considered heretical. There were certain ideas that we tried to hide from many people. The Rambam himself tried to hide his ideas in Nevuchim behind what he said are contradictions and difficult language. But in a world with an internet, in a world where... We have access to everything that's been printed ever just about. It's very difficult to sometimes justify censorship because all it means is that people will want to see it even more, perhaps, than they would have had it not been censored. I remember reading in a book by someone named James Carroll, he's a former priest, and he talked about when he first got to seminary, he had brought with him certain philosophical books, and he was told by the rector of the seminary that you can't bring those in here the Inquisition doesn't allow them. And he sort of said sardonically what fascinated him wasn't just that he was up against the Inquisition, but that the books that were on the index, the index of banned books, are available in paperback. And that's certainly even more true when it comes to the internet. So I'm curious what you think, Rabbi Breitowitz, about the idea of censorship. Is there a place for censorship in certain areas?
0: Well, you know, we we face this issue in Orsameha all the time. I mean, listen, if you go all the way back to the Rambam and the Moritabuchin, was an attempt to censor the Mardinavukim to burn the Mardinavukim because he was integrating Aristotelian philosophy and and, and Jewish theology. And some say that's too dangerous; that's going to be poisonous. Uh, and you know, I, you know, back and forth. There was this was a mahocus that, that went on for hundreds of years in different contexts and the like. The you Chayvus Halabovos, Shara Yichlo. Now the Gra said all of the al babas is good, but skip you know, skip Shara And yes, if he's taking Yeshiva like or some now, uh, we do have you know, discussions of the classical proofs for the existence of God and the like, because the issue is our students have been exposed to atheism. They know Richard Dawkins. They know Christopher Hitchens, They know Sam Harris. So they have the poison in them already. So we got to deal with it. So to some degree, it's exactly, that's even true for people in insulating environments. You know, the internet has made everything available. Uh, ben Yehuda is, is you know, less than a quarter mile from Ayah uh, The notion that you can create segregated environments is largely an illusion. And as a result, we have to teach our kids how to deal with these ideas rather than make believe the ideas don't exist because they're gonna find out about it one way or the other. So I I, I think censorship does not have a role, but, but that does not mean accept, we accept it, meaning, I'm not in favor of censorship, but I am in favor of articulating Emerson Shetner, and right and wrong, and meaning we need to know what is behind the pale. So, if some Orthodox rabbi uh, writes an article as uh, defending gay marriage as uh, within the framework of Torah, I, I don't know if censorship would be the appropriate response. But I think denunciation or, or critique would have to be there would have to be forthcoming. We can't allow. A big tent of opportunists, as as desirable as it is, to dilute and distort the meaning of Torah Hashem, not ours to distort. Now, where it gets complicated is that, you know, different people draw their line a different way. So, for example, let's assume somebody simply wrote an article about the desirability of having parnasa. So, from my perspective, I, I would conceive that to be a legitimate subject for discussion. Some people might consider that to be up in courses and and beyond the tail. So it depends where you draw the line. I think there has to be a line, but I think the category of
1: acceptability would be fairly broad, but there still has to be some boundary at some point. Robert Bradowitz, I really appreciate everything you've told me. I have a final question for you today. You mentioned a few moments ago about the hope for the future, and that you think that there will be greater integration in the future. So, going back to our initial discussion about integration, in what ways do you anticipate that there will be greater Haredi integration in Israel in the future? Will that happen economically? Will it happen in the army? In what ways do you think it will happen? Well, first,
0: I, I, I want to call your attention. Of course, you heard this—the the, the the very very important statement of Rav Moshe Hillel Hirsch, who is one of the senior. Maybe he is the senior Rosh Sheba. In Eretz Israel, Bnei Brak, Slovatka, certainly a very, very important figure in the Haredi world in which he openly said, and Reb Dov was sitting right next to him. also a great, great uh, God in the Haredi world uh, about the importance of uh, understanding that many Bnei Torah will have to have Parnassas and they should have Parnassas and they need to be regarded as Bnei Torah, not as outliers. Or whatever it is. Now, this may sound like an obvious type of statement. <laughs> What's the finish? But rest assured, this was a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous finish, which I think is a harbinger of things to come. So I think we're going to see more and more Kraiti integrated in the workforce, number one. I think we're going to see a certain amount of secondary education built into the Kharedi system past eighth grade, including high school and Bagrut or or, or whatever. Uh, we're going to see most of Kainasa. We're going to see the legitimation of, of work. So um, culturally, of course, there will always be differences, and proper, properly so. But I think there'll be much more integration at the economic level and uh, a greater um, you know, secular element in the educational systems. And, of course, our hope and our prayer was not dilute religious fervor and commitment but it will create more of a Torah type of mentality. You now, people point out that after the Holocaust, the Hajinish said that we need at least 75 years of getting everybody full-time Torah learning in order to build up what was lost. Interestingly enough, the 75 years have passed, and maybe it's time to reevaluate what is the optimal mix in Am Yisrael. There were always Yisachars and Zabulim in the golden age of Eastern Europe, which was not as golden as we sometimes imagine it. Most of the were, were working, Yisachar, Terra Yisachar, and in some ways, the emphasis on polel for life uh, was really a deviation. It was a And it could be that the pendulum is uh, swinging back to the normal
1: way a Torah society is constituted. to. Well, Rabbi Yitzhak Breidowitz, I really appreciate everything that you've been able to be Bahadish today for me and for my listeners, all that you have brought to this conversation. Again, I know that you're not necessarily representing at all times your own positions, but you beautifully articulated the way that... These ideas of the Haredi world have been presented and are argued, and hopefully together we can, as you suggest, have the sense of unity out of a sense of understanding each other, talking to each other and not past each other, and being able to hopefully bring all of Am Yisrael together into a single entity as much as possible.
0: If I could just add one thing, you know, there's a pasach in Mishle, water reflects the face that you show the water, so through the heart of man. And the grass says, when I look into a reflecting pool of water, whatever face I show the water is the face I get that. I smile at the water, I get a smiling face, I frown at the water, I get a frowning face. So too is the heart of man to man. If I can look at the other person and I can see their hashibas, I can see their legitimacy, I can see the beauty of what they're doing, they're going to see the beauty within me as well. And therefore, instead of demonizing each other, we try to see the good that each other brings to this mix. And my respect for you will foster your respect for me, God's mercy. And I think that's a major, major key in navigating all of the conflicts between Chilongi and Charedi and Dati Leovi and every other subgrouping that we have in Amiswah.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much. Subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit JewishCoffeehouse.com for other episodes of the Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences